Thank you for listening to this presentation hosted by the Durham University Center for Catholic Studies, a center for Catholic theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following lecture was presented in November 2019 at a conference on the Franciscan legacy, a conference hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies and sponsored by the Franciscan families of the UK and Ireland. This presentation was also the annual The Year Lecture 2019 supported by the British The Year Network. The lecture is by Ilia Delio and is entitled Living Creation Theology in the Context of Contemporary Science, the Distinctive Contribution of the Franciscan Theological Tradition. In 1981, the wonderful friar theologian who died all too young, Eric Doyle, published uh, in a, the small journal, The Cord, um, an article on Franciscan theology where he says, I believe we possess a treasure of inestimable riches. The Franciscan theological tradition has a distinctive, indeed unique approach to reality, which has a relevance now greater than ever before. My plea is that we initiate a fresh dialogue with our theological past, It will bring us speedily into fruitful dialogue with our own time. That was a profound saying in 1981, and it still holds true for today. I think one thing I want to draw our attention to that are many discussions on Franciscan, the Franciscan legacy are really, in a sense, talking about, in some ways, a very different time and place than our own today. The Franciscan tradition grows up in the 13th century, uh, a century that, in a sense, was grounded in the world of Ptolemy, the Ptolemaic cosmos, um, in which the, the cosmos itself was really seen to be a static type of structure, uh, a geocentric one, um, where, in a sense, the Earth was centered and the stars and the planets circulated around the Earth. And I think for our friends, uh, Francis and Bonaventure and Scotus, this medieval Christian worldview had both a physical and a spiritual realm, so that this space of transcendence that governed this cosmos was a place of deep theological and spiritual reflection. Um, this, this cosmos was also, in some ways, anthropocentric. If it was not only geocentric, the human person was at the center of that earth. Uh, being created on the sixth day in the image of God, the human was created to contemplate both things spiritual and material. Bonaventure writes beautifully on the human person as the noble center of the universe, one that has um, two natures united in personhood. Now, I'm not going to go through a lot of this history. I think you know it, but this wonderful medieval synthesis that we find from both the Franciscans and the Dominicans really was challenged in the 16th century as cosmology shifted. With the rise of heliocentrism, uh, the church, in a sense, distanced itself from modern science. And I think this is the beginning, in, in a sense, of our modern ills. Um, we no longer, in a sense, began to look to the heavens uh, to, in a sense, know God and to know ourselves in God. There was a turn inward um, as the heavens themselves became mapped out and named, and mystery collapsed, you might say, into um, objectifiable knowledge. The British psychiatrist, Ian McGilchrist, wrote a wonderful book a number of years ago called The Divided Mind, or The Master and His Emissary is the Larger Volume, where, where McGilchrist, now I hope your brain doesn't look like this this morning, quite honestly, <laughs> mine feels a little bit like this, right? Um, McGilchrist says, you know, basically we have two hemispheres of the brain, the right brain and the left brain. The right brain is the brain that's open to passion and creativity, uh, the brain that's connected to the body, so to speak, and therefore connected to the wider world. The left brain is the brain of analysis and control, uh, the brain that, in a sense, reasons and breaks things down into bits. 
And he says, you know, at some point, we lost that wider connectivity of the right brain, the spacious brain, and we became very left brain people, especially with the rise of modern science and the alienation, in a sense, of religion from science, I would add. And so we're very good at analyzing things. You know, give me the data, I can analyze it, break it down into bite-sized bits, and uh, you know, describe everything to you in explicit detail. But we've lost our sense of deeper connectivity to the whole. And that loss of connectivity, I think, is bearing in our own time, in uh, global climate change, in uh, the profound consequences of climate change with uh, geographical and species depletions and geographical shifts, polar caps melting, and the poor being affected disproportionately by these changes. One of the, in a sense, one of the major um, challenges here is how do we, in a sense, find our way back to the universe that we actually live in uh, and find God in this universe. This is our universe. We do not live in the Ptolemaic universe. We live in a Big Bang universe. This universe is very, very old. So if you're feeling old, just think of the universe, that's about 13.8 billion years old. And we cannot get our heads around this. The fact that this universe extends um, far back in time, with a beginning that science, scientists themselves still cannot explain. Um, we are one, perhaps maybe of many universes. All we know is that there's a singularity, a point of beginning, a t equals zero, so to speak, where <clears throat> this universe now is an unfolding of space-time. We don't live in space-time. Space-time is, in a sense, what is unfolding with the expansion of the universe. It takes a long amount of times for this universe to form, and <clears throat> it looks like this universe may extend trillions of years into the future. So it's an expanding universe, and we ourselves may feel ourselves part of this expanding universe at times. <laughs> I, think for, <laughs> I think for our purposes, and all this is, you know, brought about, I'll spare you the details of, of, of physics here, but, you know, Albert Einstein made some radical shifts in his thinking. And once he began to realize that the stuff of matter, what we call matter, is no longer just substance or inert substance or the, the term being, which I find sometimes <clears throat> can be rather abstract. What exactly are we talking about? Uh, and Einstein, you know, really came up with the idea that matter and energy are interconvertible. So that the world that we call matter is really a world of energy. Scientists in the early 20th century uh, began to do experiments to understand how this world of energy is formed and connected. And many physicists began to realize that we live in a world of deep relationality. And in fact, the word holism is very appropriate to describe, in a sense, the fundamental stuff of the universe. Um, as one writer says, um, the nature that comprises us is not composed of material substances per se, but of deeply entangled fields of energy. So that it's appropriate to say that the nature of the universe is undivided wholeness. That if we were to, in a sense, look back to the underlying uh, substrate of our lives, it's just fields within fields within fields of, of undivided um, energy. David Bohm, the physicist who was a contemporary of Einstein, wrote a book called Implicate Order, that there is this relational holism that is brought about by quantum physics. And he said, as human beings and societies, we seem separate, something that Einstein himself noted. But he says, in our roots, we are part of an indivisible whole and share in the same cosmic process. 
So that is, that is a very different type of understanding of cosmological and cosmic life than the ancients. Um, well, and when they did know it, but in a different way. I think the other aspect of, of physics that really challenges us is quantum physics with the role of consciousness. We know that um, the early experiments um, that came to understand what energy is about required the aspect of consciousness to make a determination. Otherwise, the stuff we call stuff is really existing in superimposed positions of wave-particle duality. So, Max Planck, a great physicist in the early 20th century, said, I regard consciousness as fundamental, <clears throat> and I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. We cannot get behind consciousness. Everything that we talk about, everything that we regard as existing, postulates consciousness. And this still is not a set, you know, this is not fully resolved among scientists. There are still some who will claim materiality and consciousness eventually rises, you know, out of materiality. But from quantum physics, consciousness precedes matter itself. So that James Jean said, mind no longer appears as an accident, intruder into the realm of matter, but mind may be the creator and governor of matter. The, the background of the universe seems to be mind-like. Now, our friend Teilhard de Jardin, uh, a Jesuit, a scientist, a paleontologist, was deeply attuned to the new physics of the 20th century. And he began to, in a sense, think about consciousness and matter. And he posited, in a sense, the idea that matter has two forms of energy. He said there's sort of a withinness of matter that he called consciousness or mind. And he said there's sort of an outer dimension of matter that he calls attraction. And he said, you know, everything that exists has this dual aspect of mind and attraction, or mind and matter. So he said, well, what is the core energy that is both attractive, attractive in other words, a personal center-to-center -center attraction in which consciousness rises? And he said, love, therefore, fits that bill. Um, and therefore, Teilhard says, love is the most powerful and still the most unknown energy in the world. Now, he's saying this purely from the point of science at this point. So he, said, he goes on to say in his writings that the physical structure of the universe is love. Now, for a scientist, this would, you know, this would be enough to raise one's eyebrows and say, oh, really? You know, because we think of love, first of all, uh, culturally as a sentiment and an emotion. When, in fact, for the ancients, love was not a sentiment or emotion. So there's something that Teilhard is tapping into here that deeply resonates with how the ancients would conceive of love as, as the highest good, you know, or something that's deeply personal and attractive. So Teilhard's universe looks something like this, that matter itself is unfolding. In a sense, uh, mind and matter are moving towards something more complex, that as matter complexifies, consciousness rises. That process of complexification on a biological level is really known as evolution. One of those words that kind of disturbs people <clears throat> uh, because for some reason we, we associate evolution only with Darwin. Now I don't want to take away Darwin's you know, claim to fame, but I don't think he had the whole picture of evolution. Um, all that we're saying here is that evolution means the material universe, biological life, is a dynamic process of unfolding life. That what we are is not static or fixed or simply mechanistic, but it's a process of change. And here's what I think is important for us to remember. We are in evolution. You know, we're not over and done with. And sometimes when I hear us talking, not, not here, I mean us in a very general sense of us, <clears throat> we talk as if we're finished products. You know, here we are, we're human persons, um, and we need to find our way forward. But the fact is, we are unfinished. We are, we are in a sense, this whole universe of evolution unfolding. <clears throat> Which means we are still being created as we create. Life itself is oriented toward newness and toward future.
As far as we know, time is irreversible. We do not move backwards in this universe unless we converge up ahead, and that will be a whole different story. And finally, what we are realizing more and more is that life evolves by creative power. Creativity and technology are part and parcel of nature itself. Teilhard actually did not follow Darwin's principles of evolution per se, <clears throat> but was more attracted to Henri Bergson's notion of creative evolution, that there's a vital impulse, Bergson said, at the heart of evolution. And Teilhard will go on to call that vital impulse omega, that there is, there is a power within that is, in a sense, pushing this whole process forward, and that power is over uh, also ahead. What we do know is that we are no longer the center of the cosmos, but we are, in a sense, the vanguard. We're the, sort of the leading edge, insofar as this whole universe now recapitulates itself in us as, a, as the thinking, thinking persons. So we are evolution become conscious of itself, which means we do hold a frontier position in evolution. It matters how we think, and it matters the choices we make. And here, I have to say, I find sometimes um, religion, theology, is, is distanced from the picture of what we actually are. And we have left open a gap for, for others to fill in, and that gap has been filled in largely by technology. <coughs> Uh, our fastest, <coughs> excuse me, our fastest evolver today is technology. Um, we have been evolving since the mid-20th century almost at an exponential rate. Uh, you probably know from your cell phones, 3G is really out of touch, 4G is better, 5G is great. Uh, faster, faster, smaller, smaller, uh, to the point where we'll have implantable devices in the not-too-distant future. And it's a very strange world on the horizon for us. And I ask myself, you know, what is it about this technology? I mean, from the cell phone back in the 70s, I remember when this phone came out, you know, and they said, they're going to make a phone you can carry around in your hands. And I thought, that's crazy. My phone's on the wall and it has a cord, you know. And then in the 80s, they said, we're going to put a computer in the phone. I said, what's a computer? <laughs> Uh, and so here we are in the 21st century, where uh, it's all, it all has come to be. And there's something about technology that has pulled us in at an alarming rate, in a way that ecology has not. And I think one of the things is, <clears throat> where the medieval cosmos had the space of transcendence, it was still a lot of unknown space, the space of mystery. Um, but science began to map those spaces. And once we begin to map and name something, we objectify it. We begin to control it. We can name it. We collapse the mystery into something that we, in a sense, own. Cyberspace is, in a sense, the new space of transcendence. Uh, cyberspace kind of, in some ways, replaces the medieval cosmos. <laughs> I can go online and I can be whatever I want, I can search for whatever I want, and it's alluring, right? Because it's, it's unquenchable. And so we've come into a type of culture today where we are living in what we might call the exoskeletal life. You know, that I'm, I'm drawn into this, this cyberspace to search for something um, more than myself. One of the maxims of transhumanists, which is a type of uh, human enhancement with technology. One of the, of the maxims that <clears throat> some have espoused is that technology will fulfill what religion promises. Religion, quote-unquote, is yesterday. Uh, religion holds us back, in a sense, from creativity, from discovery. Uh, and that's very problematic. Uh, for the one thing, technology cannot fulfill what religion promises. There's something deep within us that is of God, that belongs to God, and that cannot be um, in any way controlled or manipulated. Teilhard de Jardin um, was a thinker who could step back and look at the big picture. And he said, one of the problems here is that we no longer have a God 
that meets the needs of this vast universe. And so he asks the question, who will give evolution its own God? That's a really interesting question. Of course, when I read it, I said, well, I'll give it a try. Because <clears throat> I'm a Franciscan and we do these things, right? It's a really important question. If you want to ask about the Franciscan tradition in the 21st century, we have to also engage this question as well. Um, Alfred North Whitehead uh, said in 1925, he said, God cannot be the great exception to the world, but God must be its chief exemplification. That's right out of Bonaventure, right? It's an exemplary world. The creator and the creature mirror one another. We cannot have a God of another century as a God of a world of unfolding universe and um, relational holism. So I do think that the Franciscan theologians have within their doctrines principles that are extremely helpful for us today to reclaim, you might say, the God of the 21st century. Briefly, if I think of Bonaventure's soul's journey into God, that structure of soul's journey is one based, rooted in cosmology, moving into interiority, and then finally to theology. Um, but as much as I love Bonaventure, and I sort of grew up on Bonaventure, I have come to realize more and more that the key here for us may lie in Duns Scotus. I'm a recent convert to SCOTUS, and um, I'm beginning to see more and more that SCOTUS may provide some of the philosophical tools to help, in a sense, develop a theology for the 21st century. Uh, several of his principal ideas, I think, can be helpful. I'm just going to name them here. Um, for one, his uh, calling to us the, the university of being. An idea and a principle that is highly contentious today with some, you know, um, aspects of, of theology and yet very consonant with a world of quantum physics and, and the world as science now tells us. His doctrine of Hecceitas, the way he looks at um, causality in terms of concurrence and the primacy of Christ. So I'm just going to say a brief word about each of these. First of all, univocal being simply means we cannot know God unless we, in a sense, are able to talk some way about God. So it's positing that you know, divine being and created being share the same order of being. Uh, makes a lot of sense to me, but it doesn't make a lot of sense to Dominicans, and that's okay. I mean, I'm going to give it... <laughs> I think, you know, theologically, Scotus and Bonaventure both really focus on the Trinity. Uh, God is Trinity. And in that way, God is relationality. God is community. God is personal. And so this notion that, that God is a community of persons in love, love being, in a sense, the very nature of God, um, really opens up to us, as it did for, for the theologians, as it does for Teilhard, and it should for us, that the Trinity is the ground, and, and a, an adequate ground, of a relational universe. And so, I look at the Trinity, <clears throat> and Teilhard points in this direction. He does not, Teilhard was not a systematic theologian. He was a scientist who had deep spiritual insights. But we find scattered throughout his writings, you know, this notion that, that God is, um, <clears throat> in a sense, a fountain fullness. He uses that term in his writings. A fontalis plenitudo, that is, in a sense, overflowing and expressive um, inward. And that bond, that openness of God to creativity and new life. And so I like to think of the triune God not as a closed system, <clears throat> but as an open system that, you know, I know Bonaventure's, you know, the symbolic number of three, uh, and, and I love that about Bonaventure, but there's something about that three that's also asymmetrical and not really symmetrical, that th there's, there's both a, um, the generation and the receptivity and that complexity of those two principles in the openness 
<coughs> to the third. So God is outward moving. That's all that we're saying here. I think Trinity points to the outward moving of God in that sharing of love. Um, and it's precisely, I think, a God who is not only deeply relational, but love itself is particular and personal. And I find that particularity and personal, the personalness of love expressed in some ways in Scotus' doctrine of hecchetas. <coughs> God doesn't create some kind of force field. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> it's early morning, and it's we're in Durham. <coughs> There's this notion of the individuality of everything that exists. This principle of its beingness. God creates this being. And this being is not that being. And there's something of this doctrine of Hecatus that speaks to a God of absolute, overflowing, generous love that is deeply, deeply personal in love. I think Scotus also was very novel for his own time. The way he looked at um, causality or primary, secondary causality. Not as God creating and that which God creates participates in the divine. Rather, concurrence, this term concurrence, points to the simultaneous operation of primary and secondary causes. In a sense, God acting along with the, the creature or created being, rather than acting in. So that everything that exists, exists with divine presence as both the source of its beingness and yet the freedom of that existence to be itself, to be its own creativity. Uh, <clears throat> Teilhard, now here's a really interesting thing. I don't know how much Teilhard knew of Scotus. But several of his ideas are deeply scotistic. So there's definitely work to be done in this area. Um, for Teilhard, uh, he has this idea that God is the formal cause of that which exists, the intrinsic principle of being, but not being identical with being. So Teilhard said, where God is operating, it's possible only for us to see the work itself. Which means God imparts this dynamism to creation, a freedom uh, for the created thing to be itself. And that principle of beingness is uh, omega, what he calls omega. So this principle of omega, this principle of beingness, is God for Teilhard. So he says God is within. God is within everything that exists, and yet God is more than everything that exists. So God is within and ahead, not within and above, in a sense of the Ptolemaic paradigm, but within and ahead, so that God is future, and that future is always, in a sense, arriving in the present. Teilhard's um, quasi-scotistic paradigm moves, in a sense, to an open theism. He is a process theologian. And here I want to, in a sense, suggest, here's a suggestion, that maybe Alfred North Whitehead is not the father of process theology, maybe Dun Scotus is. And he certainly, Scotus definitely sets the principles for process theology to develop. Um, but the way it develops, at least in Teilhard, is, is as a mutuality, a God-world relationship that really can speak to a world of relational holism. So for Teilhard, God is truly related to the world, and the world is truly related to God. Um, Teilhard says in his writings that God and the world form a complementary pair. Uh, that, in a sense, God affects the world, but the world also affects God. And that still, uh, that still jostles people. <coughs> we, <coughs> excuse me, we want God to be an unaffected, but, you know, just there for us, God. And basically what Teilhard is saying is this is true relationality, right? That God is relationality itself. And therefore, any true relationship um, will, be, will affect those in relationship. So Teilhard um, looks at a God-overflowing love. 
the expression of that love and the sharing of that love in um, the incarnation. In this respect, he is also um, right in, in line with Duns Scotus, right? And a little bit of Bonaventure. <clears throat> um, Teilhard points out to us that God becomes element and draws all things through love into the fullness of being. This is still, you know, I think for many, uh, we're, we're sort of, I, I get the sense sometimes we're a little bit quasi-gnostic, you know, we have a God up here, not really involved in materiality, maybe sort of a little bit involved. Tara's like, no, 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 God is found not in opposition to matter or independent of matter. God is found through matter. Matter matters to God. <clears throat> And I think the Franciscans, certainly building on the insights of Francis of Assisi, would be very much at home with this. And so we know that we Franciscans have sort of jettisoned, um, you know, the original doctrine of original sin. Uh, not that there's not sin, and not that it doesn't have an origin. It just may not be due to a single couple, <laughs> or a fall. So. Teilhard's idea, following Scotus, and you know that Teilhard picked up the doctrine of the primacy of Christ from the Sicilian father Allegra, late in life. And when he found it, he said, there is the future of theology. That is a really interesting statement. Um, and it basically is boiled down to this. Christ is first in God's intention to love, in God's intention to create. From all eternity, God has willed to share love you know, um, and willed a, a creature to finite, to grace and glory. So here's the thing. Teilhard, you know, throughout his life, none of his writings were published. The Jesuits thought he was scandalous. The church, um, you know, condemned his doctrine of original sin. Had Teilhard become a friar minor, I do think things might have gone a little bit better for him. <laughs> we would have published his writings, you know, I'm sure of it in court. So, Taylor, in, in his own way, it's interesting that the Jesuits, and here I would say Teilhard and Karl Rahner, bridge principles of the Franciscan tradition with the modern world in a way that I haven't seen as much with Franciscan theologians, per se. Teilhard builds then a whole doctrine of God, in a sense, incarnating the world. That God um, is, in a sense, that as creator, uh, is also incarnating. Every act of creation is, in a sense, an act of incarnation. Um, so that Teilhard sees creation, incarnation, and redemption as, you might say, three aspects of the one act of God's self-giving love. This is a dynamic process, not a process of the past. So God is creating, incarnating, and therefore he calls this whole process Christogenesis, right? The birthing of the Christ. Christ, not as a doctrine, but as a living reality of divine love incarnating. So, Teilhard then brings this idea of Christogenesis into his other corollary term, theogenesis, that God is rising up in evolution. This is not, you know, not unlike the Athanasian idea that God became human, that we might become like God, right? But what Teilhard does is he brings this, in a sense, this God involvement of divine love into evolution. And he says, through ongoing incarnation, God is rising up through consciousness and is completed by humankind in directed evolution. Uh, so bringing this into an understanding that if God is rising up in consciousness in evolution, then it puts a new spin on who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ not as the uh, one who comes to rescue us from a fallen world, but Jesus Christ as the, you might say, the epitome of this long development whereby the world becomes aware of itself and comes into the direct presence of God. And here, in this respect, I think Karl Rahner picks up also uh, the, doc the scotistic notion of the primacy of Christ as well as um, the, the, the notion of hecceitas. That you might say, Jesus is the hecceitas, or the hecceitas of Christ, is Jesus' thisness, that God is present in Jesus in this way, in this unique way, where 
this whole process of a grace-filled incarnational evolution, you know, rises up and in this person, Jesus, gets a resounding yes, right? Jesus' full response to that gift of grace and that gift of love. So therefore, Jesus becomes the model on which God models everything in creation. Um, the sun, the stars, rain, raindrops, protons, grapes, everything has that love within it. Everything has this capacity for union with God. So, you know, uh, to use a term that you can't see it on top, um, that Panikar uses is, Jesus, Jesus is like a cosmotheandric whole. In Jesus, cosmos, theos, and anthropos come together in a unitive, yes, a unitive response in love. Um, so that the consciousness of God in that person of Jesus is, in a sense, God's revelation in love. So Jesus, you know, becomes the new person. Now, Taylor himself does not spend a lot of time on the humanity of Jesus. It's one of the, um, one of the criticisms of his doctrine. But I think we can, we can read into his, this in his doctrine um, the idea from John Cobb, the process theologian, that Jesus signifies a new structure of existence. That Jesus is not just about a kind of rescue person, that Jesus is, in a sense, um, exemplary of the new creation. Uh, his saying, I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance, speaks to not only his life, but our lives as well. So, Taylor puts this together, in a sense, in a way very consonant with Bonaventure. Uh, and probably SCOTUS, but I don't know SCOTUS enough to say it. For Bonaventure, I could say yes. That, you know, this whole process of evolution is a cosmic Christogenesis. In a sense, the, the person of Jesus Christ symbolizes what the whole evolutionary movement is about. Suffering, death, new life. So that, as Paul writes in Romans, you know, the entire creation is groaning in that one act of giving birth. And therefore, what Tehra says is we cannot be saved except through the universe and as a continuation of the universe. And I'm not sure we're really here, quite honestly. Again, if I go back to the crises that we face in our own age, we have come to these crises because we have not lived a theology that has taken the material world seriously as the place of encountering God and God's own rising up. So I want to return then to Teilhard's model that this universe moves toward a creative future. Only when the inner universe and the outer universe form a single universe. And I think we have bifurcated these two movements on the human level. And this is where I think returning to, you know, for the, for the Franciscans, theology and spirituality uh, were intertwined. And I think, I think to return to that intertwining of theology and spirituality is crucial for our own age. Uh, and, and one thing I want to, in a sense, emphasize here, at least what science is telling us today, is that our minds create the world, not the other way around. It matters what you think. It matters how you think. Um, and I think here I would turn to the figure of Francis of Assisi, a very simple man, um, a man who is not a, a trained theologian, and yet someone who is deeply grasped by God and whose mind was, in a sense, completely turned toward God. Where did he find that God? I think he found that God first within and then found that God without. And here, I want to just point to something that Thomas Merton wrote, the famous Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, which I think resonates with Francis's own life. At the center of our being is a point of nothingness, which is untouched by sin and by illusion, a point of pure truth, a point or spark which belongs entirely to God. This little point of nothing in us as our poverty is the pure, 
glory of God in us. And I think that that glory of God in the life of Francis, it, it, it awakened in him. Something turned, and we know the stories, right, from, from the legenda. But Francis became, in a sense, preoccupied with this inner presence of God. So that, as Thomas of Tolano says, whether walking, sitting, lying down, his mind was always focused on prayer. You know, he became, in a sense, a living prayer. Uh, so that, I always, I, I do this, love this, from Tolano. You know, talk of Jesus was always on his lips. He was always with Jesus, Jesus in his heart, Jesus in his mouth, Jesus in his eyes, Jesus in his ears, Jesus in his hands. He bore Jesus in his whole body. Francis <clears throat> doesn't take on poverty just as um, a spiritual discipline. There is a deep turning. There's a mind change in him. Where this kind of turning in grace, this receptivity of grace, this awareness of the inner presence of God, Omega, causes him to release uh, the Eckhartian term, Gelassenheit, to release, right? To release what? Control. The need to control things. The need to, in a sense, be the one who's manipulating. So this conversion and releasement allows Francis to let things be to let them be what they are, and in that letting be, to have that divine light shine through. So there's a saying, when the level of our awareness changes, we start attracting a new reality. This is Teilhard as well. Consciousness is the name of the game, right? Where our minds are, there our treasure lies. And I think for Francis, and as the Franciscans begin to build on his spiritual experience, um, it is taking this sacramental world at its root value as the place to encounter God, but it takes a change of mind to know this God. Uh, the sacramentality of the world means that everything and anything that awakens, enlivens, and expands the imagination, uh, that opens the vision of the inner eye, that enriches the sensitivity of any human being, that causes us to notice God's love, which supports all that exists. Anything that does that is a sacrament. And Francis came to live within a sacramental vision of the world. This world is holy. This world is sacred. And so his life, this, this conversion of mind and a conversion of heart, that leads him to this Christified life, to use a Teardian term, allows him to behold what has always been present, right? Divine love incarnating in the rabbits, in the leaves, in the trees. Um, but what does Francis do in that slow time and that deep attention? He notices, he accepts, he is a brother. He is receptive to that which he encounters. And in that receptivity of the sacredness of life, he celebrates. Um, and therefore, I think sacramental life means to bring to explicit attention and embrace in some concrete experience. We celebrate by having a concrete experience in time and place. This is what Teilhard himself recognized. There is nothing profane below for those who know how to see. And that really disturbs me because either we are really blind or we have forgotten how to see. And the key to this vision is, in a sense, where our minds are, where God is within that whole inner life. Beatrice Buchel, the Teardin scholar, says the more conscious the individual becomes, the more the individual becomes person. Person as relational being. And she says each person is person only to the extent that one lives freely by the life of the whole. Do we live by the life of the whole? To know ourselves as wholes within wholes not separated, isolated, isolated individuals. 
Teilhard came to that mindfulness of the whole as the body of Christ. In that beautiful passage from his Mass on the World, well known that he was in the deserts of China with very little to sustain him in terms of celebrating the Mass. And he wrote this beautiful prayer. Since I have neither bread nor wine nor altar, I will raise myself beyond these symbols, up to the pure majesty of the real itself. I, your priest, will make the whole earth my altar, and on it will offer you all the labors and sufferings of the world. Over every living thing which is to spring up, to grow, to flower, to ripen during this day, say again these words, this is my body, and over every death forth, force which waits in readiness to corrode, to wither, to cut down. Speak again the commanding words which express the extreme, supreme mystery of faith. This is my blood. This is Christ in the whole. And did not Francis of Assisi come to something similar in his own life? That canticle of the creatures that we sing so often and celebrate is really in some ways Francis's own priestly oblation. The whole hymn is like a doxology. You know, and we know it well, so I don't have to read it here. But, you know, praise be you, my Lord, through sister water, through brother fire, through sister mother earth. Through him, with him, in him. You know, all that exists is brought into a unity um, into God. I think Francis of Assisi, and I think, I think the theologians in their own ways, you know, got this. He does come, and if I were to use a modern term, into a cosmotheandric self. I think he, he suffered throughout his life to find a community where he could settle down. And there's something about Francis, his itineracy. It's not just, oh, gee, I want to just get on the road again and travel. He could never really settle into a community. And yet, when he comes to sing this at the end of his life, a year before he dies, he comes to a conscious awareness that his true community is the whole earth. He moves into a different level of consciousness, what Teilhard himself called the terrestrian. We are not just pilgrims, but we are children of the earth. And I think he comes into this level of terrestrian life because he, in a sense, reconciles in his life outer space and inner space so that there are no more two spaces but one seamless flow, outer space within. And so that which is within is lived without. Francis became to live by the life of the whole. The key to his life, and I think the key to this whole kit and caboodle, is contemplation. And I think we have forgotten that prayer is at the heart of the Franciscan tradition. I think Francis was first a deeply contemplative person, um, and therefore one who grew out of that inner center of God into a new awareness of God at the heart of creation. Um, he was a mystic, uh, in the words of Martin Laird, who went about the world urging all things toward unity. Contributing to, we might say, the evolution of the world through a process of convergence, right? Drawing things together through this seeing, where everything is bound in a luminous web of love. Teilhard himself said, something will explode if we persist in trying to squeeze into our old tumble-down huts the material and spiritual forces that are now on the scale of the world. New wine cannot be put into old wineskins. They, they know, not that the old skins are bad, they just don't hold the new wine. Uh, Thomas Merton said, and I think this is very apropos here, we must contain all divided worlds within ourselves and transcend them in Christ. It's a new way of saying, another way of saying that when we come to that deeper level of awareness of God at the heart of our lives and the heart of our worlds, we, in a sense, can transcend those divisions and move toward new levels of unity. I think we need to recognize in our own day that we are the new creation. 
There is no other creation. We are in this creation in the active sense of being those who participate in the act of creating. So we can no longer just be passive recipients or think that the world will go on without us. Well, it will in some ways if we stand back, but it will be created by someone else. So the universe unfolds in and through us. That is what the best of science is telling us today. What Teilhard contributes to this understanding is that the core energy at the heart of this unfolding life is love. And he says love alone is capable of uniting living beings in such a way so as to complete and fulfill them. For love takes them and joins them by what is deepest in themselves. Bonaventure could have written this. Scotus could have written this. Francis lived it. Bonaventure himself said, you truly exist where you love, not merely where you live. That is not just a spiritual saying or a theological saying, it's a philosophical saying. That the ground of our existence, the very beingness of being itself, is love. Um, and therefore, I think we have within the Franciscan tradition a rich field of theological and philosophical ideas that can help reawaken in our own time a new, you might say, grounding in love. Teilhard himself thought that love alone can bring us to the threshold of another universe. It will not be how science conquers or technology invents. It will be how we live in the transforming energy of love. And maybe that's a question for us, you know, here at this conference. How can this tradition enkindle love in the 21st century? Not as an emotion, but as the deepest reality of our lives, knowing that the ground of that love is God. And also recognizing that this God of love is, in a sense, crucifying the world in and through us. And maybe to recognize that the fullness of Christ is not yet complete. That it depends on our lives and how we live into this mystery of Christ. So I conclude with the words of Beatrice Bouteau, a wonderful Teilhardian scholar, where she writes on the living Christ. And she writes, you are the new and ever-renewing act of creation. You are all of us as we are united in you. You are all of us as we live in one another. You are all of us in the whole cosmos as we join in your exuberant act of creation. You are the living one who improvises at the frontier of the future. And it has not yet appeared what you shall be. Thank you.